This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Breaking bread is our search for common ground at a time when the country is divided politically. We've brought Coloradans around a dinner table in our lobby. We visited a Christian church in Pueblo and a mosque near Denver. This week, breaking bread takes us to the workplace. People spend a good chunk of their lives in the office and don't necessarily leave their views at the door. Our guide this time is Kalinas Newsom. She voted for Hillary Clinton, and here she is at one of our dinners. I think the current political climate still has me a little shocked, but I just think there's more that brings us together than that brings us apart. Newsom is African-American and works at a Denver foundation. Before that, she was at Aurora Public Schools, and she told us about a co-worker in Aurora she disagreed with politically, but got along with really well. So well it surprises her. His name is Brian Yates, he's white, and the three of us sat down at a giant conference table in Newsom's office. It's kind of weird a little bit. I mean, because I do have these preconceived notions and ideas about white men and white maleness. And we talked about that a couple of times. We did. Pretty vocally. Very yeah. in-depth. Yeah. And, yeah. and openly. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you asked some questions about some things in my office, like a picture on my wall. That's right. That I think allowed some of those doors to open up. He has this picture. Are you talking about the picture of the... The dinner. The dinner? Yeah. Imagine like a street with long eight-foot tables with chairs. Just out in the open. Yeah. Hundreds of them down Main Street. Yeah. And it's like a community potluck. I just found that to be fascinating. Like, who does that? What was this table, Brian? Uh, From Buena Vista. Colorado. Colorado. I was the high school principal there. And... uh, we organized a community dinner. Mm-hmm. The vision was the entire community come together at one table. Uh, the table set up down Main Street. And so our first dinner four years ago, we had 1,600 people there. It was free. And uh, we provided the tables, chairs, and the main course, uh, pulled pork. And we asked folks to come together and bring uh, side dishes, plates, cups. The idea was we all sit down and break bread together. Mm-hmm. And no other reason. There was no agenda, no messages spoken. It was just dinner together. And so we were shocked at the response. But the it was photo, it's, it's like just all these people. Of all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Everyone in town. Yeah. There just seemed to be this sense of community. And so this picture of an event that is meant to spark conversation, sparks conversation between an African-American woman who has preconceived notions about white men and a white man. Mm-hmm. And what was the conversation like? I asked about the picture. You did. And I think that led us into some of our own personal, deeper issues of notions of who we are and our backgrounds. And um, like I made what? Assumptions. what were the assumptions? Yeah. I made assumptions about, like, it's great. You get all these white folks together and you set up some tables and everybody's happy, right? But in our conversation, and I got to know that there were more than just white folks at the table and that this community, not only did they respond to that sort of call, but that it was, it was something that impacted them um, long-term. Do they still do it? Now that they do. Okay. But this is still going on in, mm-hmm. in Buena Vista. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we were also talking about what that entire table did when you sat and looked at the person next to who you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe they ran the, uh, the medical marijuana shop on your right and the judge for the town was on your left. <laughs> and, and you invited both of them to your table. And it, it turned into when you get to know the person – Really, Mm -hmm. the differences seem to kind of melt away. That's what shocked me. And I'll be honest, even in my, 
I've, I don't see that very often. People who understand connection and the human capacity to, to care, regardless of what you bring to the table. What assumptions, if any, Brian, might you have had about Kalinas or about black women? I don't know. Yeah, Brian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, in my experiences, I've known all kinds of people. And I, I don't know if I have assumptions about black women. Other than um, I knew Kalinas was concerned about the political environment. In fact, the day after the election, she came to my office, told me that she went to 7-Eleven, I think, that morning to get a coffee. Mm-hmm. And two older white men had opened the door for her, and she was afraid to, to walk through the door because yeah. she didn't know what their intentions were. And I think I asked the question, what if they just wanted to open the door for you? <laughs> How'd you respond? I mean, like I'm about to respond now. I got teary. I did. I think I started to cry a little bit. I mean, because it was just one of those moments where I was, I felt guilty because I was demonizing a group of people that I, I mean, and I still do. Like I struggle every day to just sort of separate myself from, you know, my perceptions about white men, especially like straight, white, the sort of picture. But it was, it was raw. I was raw at that moment. What were you afraid of? Kind of like, do they hate me? I think I might have even said that. Like, I feel like they, there might be a level of have hate. Like, how could you, to a certain degree, even now, like, how do you ascribe to someone who who has such a, just a kind of a nasty attitude about lots of things? And in particular... This is your perception of President Trump. Yeah, yeah. It's not even about race at this point. It's It's just about your capacity as a human being a kind, compassionate person. But at that time, it was really racial for me. And I talked to Brian about it. But what I appreciated is that I could do that. Like, I could go to his office and have a straight-up temper tantrum. That you were able to be that vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I guess, one, at work, and two, in front of a white guy. And I think you might have shed a couple of tears, too. At that moment, I did, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And today, our series Breaking Bread continues. It's our search for political common ground. This time, it takes us to a Denver office where Democrat Kalinas Newsom, who's African-American, is sharing what she has learned from her colleague Brian Yates, who's white. Now, the elephant in the room here is that Kalinas, I think you've... I don't know if they're assumptions or if this is based on fact, but I think you have a perception of what Brian's politics might be mm-hmm. and that they might be different from yours. For sure. Like I, I'm like 99.9% sure. <laughs> sure of what? <laughs> this is a Republican. <laughs> that he's a Republican. Oh, yeah. You have to be. Why? Why do just I have to cause, be? Because you just are. Because I'm white? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that he's like a liberal Republican. What if I'm ultra uber conservative? I think I, that would not surprise me. Would uh, anything surprise certain, you about me? No. Well, yeah, okay. So there are a couple <laughs> of things that surprise me. The man can cook. That also was a place we broke down. And that made was we did. We broke. We broke yeah. down. But it was the it was the rib that. Did. <laughs> wait, wait. We went from pie to ribs to gumbo. Remember the rib? I brought in two slabs of ribs and yep. I saved one for you. I was so unprofessional at work that day. I warmed that rib up, took it to my desk. And ate that rib. It was one of the best. And then I'm like, okay, so this guy understands like Southern food. Mm. So much of what connects you is about food, right? Food. There's that, yes. there's that table and the photo of 
of the table you see. There's yeah. the table here. Yeah. Yeah. There's the gumbo. Why did you assume Brian was Republican? I mean, I think we had some conversations where there were some some alluding of being conservative. I'm a mixed bag. I'm hard to define. I drive a pickup truck. Yep. I cook Southern food. Yep. I'm from Missouri. Yep. My eighth grade report was on the Dred Scott case. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> no one knows how to define me, including myself. And I find it useful in my life to not allow any group to define me. But Instead, you, I want to make connections with people. But you lean to the right, don't you? I honestly have very little use for politics. <laughs> Libertarian now. Well, I'm just going <laughs> to I'm going <laughs> to off the grid. Ask it here. <laughs> Kalinas, we know you voted for Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Brian, who'd you vote for? <laughs> I didn't. You did. I didn't vote for a president. What did you do? I voted for everyone else, but I couldn't vote for a president. Not in good conscience. You never asked him. I did. He wouldn't tell me. (laughs) She did. She asked. Several times. But the mystery opened doors, right? It kept the curiosity going. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? I think Kalinas is trying to figure me out. Yes. Has allowed me, in some ways, almost a teaser with with different parts of who I am so that she would get to know who I really am without the prejudices. Mm -hmm. Mm. There were a lot of people angry at voters who didn't take part in the presidential election, Brian. Yes. You said that was not the election to sit out. How do you respond? I agree, and I wish I could have participated, but in good conscience, I could not follow my heart in any one direction. I think many, many voters voted for something different. They knew that what they had wasn't working, and so they went for the wild card, and that's why Donald Trump was elected president. And I voted in every other election since I was able to vote. Republican. Why do you think that? <laughs> Have you voted for both Democrats and Republicans, Brian? I have. In the presidential election? Yes. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you vote for Obama? I'm predominantly Republican. How about that? <laughs> Thank you. <Okay. laughs> because in the end, I believe in smaller government. <laughs> I've had Republican candidates ask me to, to endorse their, their race. And, you're and when I tell them what I'm about, they say, thanks, but we don't need your voice. I can see that. How was this to broach at work? Oh, it was super easy. Why? Just like how you see us right now. Yeah. That's how we could be at work. But couldn't that get iffy fast? As far as the political views or yeah. just getting personal at work? I suppose either. But, but certainly when it comes to politics. I think I felt that. You felt tension? Well, in Aurora, I'd say in a, in a place where we – social services are big and we serve a very diverse and mm-hmm. I'd say a needy population – a lot of folks there are very liberal, particularly in our, in our leadership. Yeah, yeah. In education, mm-hmm. the field of education mm-hmm. is predominantly more liberal than it is conservative. I yeah. wonder if, if in that way you feel like the minority or the odd man out. I do. I do. And it's probably where I learned to be quiet and more mysterious about that. And I let my actions speak for who I am more than my label. Labels, I think, isolate us more than, than bring us together. Uh, a label says that hey, we, we identify the same, so we should be the same. But then we don't talk. Mm-hmm. We're not curious anymore. What's most hurtful to you about what people on opposite sides of the political divide think or say about you? Hmm. I, I'll tell you this, that for me, and this is hurtful for everyone that I know, when the assumptions are made that if you didn't vote for 
Obama or did vote for Obama or didn't vote for Trump or did vote for Trump or any of the other candidates that you completely align with, with that candidate. That's very hurtful to me because I think people make decisions about their priorities and decisions about why they voted does not mean that they think just like that candidate. That maybe that there's one issue that they find most important and they've identified that way and they feel like that person's going to support it the best they can. That's like saying that everyone in the church believes the same thing the pastor does. That's bull. Kalinas? So there's a part of me that agrees, like that that must feel, um, and I think in our last Breaking Bread segment, like I, I felt like, okay, just so I've got to reconcile myself to, I know some really good people who voted for Donald Trump. And so I'm having to sort of step back and say, but are they really good people? Like, how do you vote for someone that in my view is just not a good person? So I But don't people vote for party as well? Often over personality, they look at the numbers in the Senate, they look at the balance of the Supreme Court. I'm, sh- I'm sure like I get it. I get it. But like is that the best you could do? Kalinas, what's most hurtful to you about what people with different politics say or think about you? Well, like if I'm a liberal, I can't be pro-life cuz I am. You know, as a black woman, I don't want to be seen as lazy or you know, mooching out the system. And I work really hard to ensure that everything that I bring to the table is in the best interest of other people. What do you hope people could learn from this relationship? Especially, I want you to keep in mind people who might be at the office Mm -hmm. and might have really close relationships with a coworker and maybe wondering what's lurking in their mind politically. So rather than talking about it from a workplace perspective, just in our ability as human beings, it'd be easy for me to like create my own little bubble and be safe. Like I could do that with no hesitation, but I would be doing myself a great disservice. I wouldn't let you. No, you wouldn't. And I, and I'm so grateful to our relationship. I'm grateful too. I, my answer to that question would be to check yourself Mm -hmm. when, when you're no longer curious about somebody there's just something about knowing people. And I think mm-hmm. Kalinas and I are both learners. We're, we want to learn about life, uh, try new things, what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. Um, in the workplace, you have the opportunity, I think, to uh, get to know someone over time and get to know someone in the capacity of their work and what they care about and how they work. Mm-hmm. And I've mold enough now to realize that I have gifts and I have severe deficits. It's the working together part that really works well. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that about her. He saves me in meetings too. I was in a, we were at a meeting with the superintendent. I was kind of babbling a little bit and you came in and you were not in a way that was like, you know, white savior coming in to, but you were able to step in in a way that was like, I'm going to lift her up because I know, I know her heart and I know where she's, where she's headed. Yeah. I think I just, I'm able to summarize sometimes mm-hmm. and bring together the important points. Yeah. I do feel like Brian has taught me that race and what you believe is very complex and you cannot make assumptions. Brian, what has Kalinas taught you? Kalinas has taught me that it is complex. I don't think I realized just how fearful a black woman could be just for being black. I don't think I realized the perception that she would have of a white man because I was white. I don't think I realized that that existed until Kalinas and I had those conversations and she opened that door for me. We talked about your kids mm-hmm. uh, and how you wanted them to have, to know that they were black. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, what's the difference? 
why do you, what's important about them knowing their history? And that came back to my own history. My grandparents were both Armenian. My grandma's orphaned in the Syrian desert in the Armenian massacres. And I thought, yeah, that's important, but it's still happening. And that's what I failed to really understand. Thanks to both of you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, Ryan. I love you, Kalinas. I love you too. I mean, for real, like this is real, real talk. Kalinas Newsom and her colleague Brian Yates as we take our series Breaking Bread to the Workplace. It's CPR's search for common ground among Coloradans with very different politics. At CPR.org, see the photo that got these two talking, that image of the enormous community table set up in Buena Vista, Colorado. Before the break, we heard from two Coloradans who've managed to make their political differences work in the workplace. But a lot of employers are seeing more clashes, according to the American Psychological Association. A survey in May found 40 percent of workers had had a political discussion in the office that affected their productivity or left left them stressed. And that was a significant increase from before the 2016 election. Well, our next guest is a consultant who has worked with companies, schools, the city of Colorado Springs and the Air Force Academy on policies that promote inclusion in the workplace. Jody Allen says across the board, her clients reported more discord. And Jody, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Can you give us some examples of how this is showing up in the workplace? I I see it everywhere I go. I haven't had a client in the last year that isn't concerned about the impact of political discussion on productivity and on people in the workplace. Um, People uh, are feeling tense. They're feeling anxious. Um, Problem behaviors can be anything from simple rudeness, passive things like eye rolling, ignoring colleagues not giving someone the information they need to do their job to acts of real aggression like public put-downs or fist-pounding, getting in someone's face. Uh, Those are the kind of behaviors we're seeing. Does that come as a surprise to you? No, (laughs) not at all. Incivility has been on the rise in the workplace for a number of years. It really seems to have... um, escalated beyond anything we might have imagined, though, in the last 18 months since the end of the election cycle and and the aftermath of this last year of, of leadership. Hmm. But it sounds like you think this was a trend before the election, the incivility. Yes, yes. What's different is that um, people in positions of highest authority are publicly modeling bad behavior, like bigotry and name-calling, dishonesty, threats, um, on a level that we haven't seen. So they're normalizing unacceptable behavior that's toxic, and our divisions are being inflamed instead of addressed. So we heard from some Coloradans who say political discussion is banned in their workplaces. Do you think that's a good solution? Is that the way to nip this in the bud? 
I, you know, every workplace is different, and I think that may work for some workplaces. I don't ever advocate banning conversation. I think the more important question is, how do we have that conversation? So um, I think about a situation in one workplace where there was a, a meeting and and toward the end of the meeting, um, one man got up and began uh, pacing back and forth and talking about his own uh, sense of not being heard and his own sense of victimization and and even though he wasn't actively making threats at that time, he was pacing rapidly, raising his voice, and talking about his own experience in terms of the political climate and how he felt his views were marginalized. So in that situation, it's a matter of how do we agree with one another about how we work best together? So do we have an agreement that um, we don't bring up political matters in the middle of a meeting? Hmm. Do we have an agreement that if we want to talk about those, we stay seated and we we don't interrupt one another? Um, but in that situation, the meeting ended on that tone. People were afraid to say anything. Um, some items of business didn't get done. And so... Um, the the issue, though, isn't the, the content of the conversation. It's how we have it. Well, give us some more examples of that, of how to corral the conversation properly, as opposed to stopping it outright. What have you seen work? It sounds almost trite, but I believe that ground rules or operating agreements set in advance of meetings that as a general way of operating in the workplace can be very effective. So engage the team in a conversation about what works best. How are we going to work together? What are our clear expectations for um, civil behavior? Uh, how do we how do we want to um, call each other? when there's a line crossed. So one of my favorite ground rules is presume goodwill. Um, sometimes we forget that we're all very complex human beings and we see behavior in the workplace that may feel uh, brash or aggressive and we, we forget that there are other aspects of people's lives. Maybe there are family problems. Maybe there's problems meeting the bill meeting the bills. So if we have agreements on how we want to behave together, and we also, those agreements include how do we want to check in with each other when those lines are crossed, then we can turn down the volume on conflict and turn up the warmth and compassion that allow people to connect with one another as humans. Hmm. And I... um really engage with what you're saying there, that that it can be a discussion with others in the workplace. It doesn't necessarily have to be this sort of like top-down approach. Um, why is this important? Do you, I mean, does this make a difference to the bottom line, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When 
when you have an environment where people are feeling excluded or exposed or humiliated, uh, they they lose time avoiding aggressive coworkers, they lose time worrying about avoiding each other, they become depressed or demoralized, they can't focus. So all of this affects team behavior, innovation, creativity, and ultimately the bottom line. In that case of the of the man who was so upset in the meeting, there were items of business that simply didn't get addressed that day. Mm. And I don't know when they got addressed. So it's it's imperative that we create an environment where everyone feels like they can bring their best effort to the table and it's safe to do so. Very quickly, Jody, it strikes me that this might be even more important for a workplace that's lopsided um, where, like, if you are more conservative and it's a really liberal office or you are liberal and it's a very conservative office, that that's especially important. Um, in about 10 seconds, would you agree with that? Is that is that a proper assessment? Absolutely. Okay. Where there is diversity of opinion, there is more likelihood of conflict. And where there's diversity of opinion, there's also a greater option for creativity. If you can channel these differences and make them work together, you're going to come out ahead. Jody Allen, founder of Jody Allen Consulting in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News with Breaking Bread. homes used to be segregated. When Charles McCulley took one over in Pueblo in the 1960s, it was made clear to him he was there to serve Black and Latino families. McCulley died in October, and we'll remember him now, part of a year-end series about fascinating Coloradans we lost in 2017. I spoke with his daughter, Yanira McCulley-Cedillo. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Your father was African-American. Your mother was Latina. Was Panamanian. Yes. People knew when your dad's business was in high gear, I understand, because of the cars, right? He didn't want the typical black hearses? Correct. My dad implemented a color of lavender on our fleet, and it was the talk of the town, I think, at that time. And some of his colleagues said, you're committing business suicide. And he said, no, I'm not. And uh, we were distinctive with our fleet of being lavender. So, yes, he did do that. (laughs) Lavender. Your father actually took over this funeral business from another family, the Joneses. Uh, They'd started in the 20s. How did it happen that they served African-American and Latino families when so many others didn't? You know, they were brought here to do that, and uh, they had no children. And so when they were ready to retire in 1966-67, a former colleague of my father's contacted him and told him, this would be a good fit for you to come. You know, but the only thing is, I know you're used to doing a diversity. You're only going to be taking care of the African-Americans and the Hispanics here in Pueblo. So that was kind of a, a bit of a shock to him, but they've done well. I want to try to understand better this idea that funeral parlors were were segregated. Can you help us understand that landscape a little bit? Well, we all go to our own is what they used to say. You know, just like Sunday, everybody goes to their own churches. During the week, we're all together. But 
we go to our own and we take care of our own. And Black funeral homes took care of the African-American people. And so it sounds like there is a part of this that's cultural, but uh, at the time, the, the understanding was you went to the parlor that corresponded to your color was not so much a choice. Has that changed much? It has changed immensely. I mean, you know, um, there's still room for improvement, but it has changed a lot. It's just been a blessing that we've been able to cross over and take care of people. And they see us not for the color of our skin, but for our service that we provide. Your father's obituary says he was literally born into the funeral business. How so? His uncle was an undertaker in Pocatello, Idaho. And so my father would go and spend um, vacations with his uncle. And my father assisted in the first embalming that he ever did. And it was done through gravity at that time, was not a machine. So things have changed. (laughs) It was done through gravity. What do you mean? My father said they used to hold up the bottles of embalming fluid and they would come down through the tubes and be injected into the bodies versus now it's a machine that you can control and know if you have enough fluid and that you're getting the right flow. That was back in the the 1940s. So, Did he have stories of who he involved? He did. He used to tell us the different people that he um, had taken care of, some famous people because he was in Los Angeles, uh, Nat King Cole. He was so proud of that. that he was able to assist on that embalming and also assist in working in that funeral. And he said it was just nice to see this, you know, the stars. He Coming from Pocatello, Idaho, you know, being exposed to that, he was just flabbergasted about it. You run the business now with your brothers. And uh, I imagine that's partly because your dad had an unusual perspective on women's involvement in the funeral business. What did he do differently? He was the first one to implement lady attendance here. My mother worked side by side with him, so she was always assisting with the funerals and being out there greeting the families and, you know, helping them through their grieving times. And we hired women and had them as our lady attendants. We also had a nurse on staff that used to attend every uh, funeral with us, you know, to make sure if there was any medical issues, they were addressed. So, yeah, they had the women. And that, too, was unusual. Unusual. A woman's place was pretty much in the office. You have said of your father, Charles, uh, that he was one of the last real undertakers. What does that mean? It comes from the old school. The way he was brought up to doing things, it's not taught like that anymore. And he worked hard to continue to build and always educating himself, always keeping up with the times. Actually, sometimes he was ahead of his himself. I used to tell him, you're dead. You're a visionary. You're You're ahead of your time, you know. Was there another example of that? He was the first one to implement the white doves here. The white doves? in Pueblo. The white doves, yes. Our funeral home was the very first one. Meaning the the releasing of doves? The releasing of the white doves is a symbolism of releasing your loved one's spirit back to heaven. Where does one get white doves? Well, we, we have them. We raise them. He brought them in from Minnesota. He has a gentleman that works for him that takes him out and trains him and bring, they come back, takes him out and trains him, brings him, come back. They keep going farther and farther. Oh, I see. So the, the doves, in a way, are in the employ of the funeral. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they come back. Exactly. They come back. We, we love to get them all back, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we don't, but. 
Was there anything unusual about your dad's own funeral or burial earlier this year? What did he want for himself after so many years doing this for other people? He just he just wanted to have a beautiful service, a Catholic service, because that's how he was raised, and that everybody was included. It was a homegoing celebration. It was not a, he didn't want us to cry, he said. He's lived his life. He said, I lived a good life. Did you cry? A little bit. Well, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Yanera McCulley Cedillo, remembering her dad, Charles McCulley, a trailblazer who ran Angelus Chapel Mortuaries in Pueblo. He died in October at age 78. Our conversation is part of a series about remarkable Coloradans who died in 2017. As 2017 winds down, we are re-airing our most listened to interviews. And this next one is about Colorado's national parks and 14,000-foot peaks. They're popular, and sometimes tourists abuse them. Dana Watts is head of Leave No Trace. The Boulder nonprofit has joined with the state to teach tourists how to protect what they love. Watts spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Dana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Give me one example of something you want to convey to visitors who come to the state. Um, yeah, just one example. That's um, that's tricky because there are many. But I guess uh, as we see increased numbers and many, many people moving to the state of Colorado, um, we are seeing, and, and primarily there are a lot of people are moving here because of the amazing outdoor landscape that we have. And with that um, comes a responsibility to really care for the outdoors that provide experiences to people. Um, and, and we really want to maintain those experiences and the outdoor that provide those experiences for us for right now and for future generations. How much worse are tourists than locals? I'm sure locals aren't perfect um, and newcomers to the state aren't really familiar with some of the rules. Yeah, I mean, we don't have data necessarily that says uh, one group is worse than another. Um, I think that if you have lived in Colorado for a long time, there's a really good chance that you are more familiar with the natural landscape and all that Colorado has to offer in terms of a 14,000-foot peak versus a river um, or just a, a park, state park, national park. So you might be a little more prepared than, say, somebody coming into the state or a tourist from out of state. Um, But there are very simple uh, practices that we provide um, and techniques for anybody to learn about Leave No Trace. And as a person gets more comfortable with uh, their outdoor experience, then they might um, learn more and more. And and the techniques and skills that Leave No Trace provides can get more in-depth and um, technical in ways. And we'll talk a little bit more about those techniques in a bit. But your group, Leave No Trace, is working specifically with the state's tourism office. How do you reach the people who need to hear this message of protecting our resources? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And this partnership with the tourism office is brand new. Um, And so we are still really looking at different ways to reach both people within the state and people coming from out of state. But 
One of the most important and unique ways that we can reach people through this partnership is in the trip planning stage. So it's uh, with our most important principle and the number one principle, and that is plan ahead and prepare. So know before you go. And if we can reach people before they get to their final destination and provide information um, that allows them to come to our state and have a better experience because they're prepared and also leave less of an impact while they're here, then it's just a win-win. And that's what what this is really all about, uh, this partnership with with the tourism office. One of the most unique ways is is really reaching people with that information before they get here. But that sounds really hard to try to get someone in another state to think about these things. I mean, how do you speak to them? Well, I think um, I don't think it's going to be that hard. I think that so, for example, if you have a person or a couple or family coming to Colorado and they've identified a 14er, you know, they've looked at uh, Mount Albert, they really want to climb. It's the highest 14er in our state. It sounds like an interesting challenge. They really, you know, they really want to take it on. If we if we can reach out to people um, in various ways, if we know that they are going to be experiencing our 14,000-foot peaks, there are very specific things that we can provide for them in terms of education and tips and um, trip planning ideas. So you need to have layers of clothing when you're climbing a 14er. You need to start off very early in the morning in order to summit, and weather always moves in, so um, you need to be prepared for that. You need to – there's very specific things that we can provide for them that allow them to come with the right equipment or clothing, um, things that allow them to minimize their impact so they are prepared. And and the way we can get that information to them is now through some of the means that the tourism offer the tourism office offers. And and there are different partners that we're looking at through that partnership um, to bring in and help get us that get that information two people traveling to the state. Yeah, I'm still having trouble understanding where that point of contact is, though. I mean, is it through, you know, a tourism website? What if they don't go to that? Um, There are so many people planning trips to Colorado. Yeah, that's right. And there are a lot of different ways to reach them. And we're, we're still really looking at what some of those are that are that are going to be most um, impactful. I think it is through the tourism website, and they've they've got a lot of new and, and different ways that they're reaching out to people. Um, but it's also through unique partnerships, um, potentially through, say, the airline industry or mm. lodging industry. So when people make a reservation somewhere, um, assuming they might stay a night in a hotel we're able to potentially get information to them through that reservation system. If they use a guide and an outfitter, we can educate outfitters so they can also provide that information, not only in, a, in the planning stage, but also while they're here on a trip. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Dana Watts of the Boulder-based group Leave No Trace. The group's working with the state tourism office to make sure visitors in Colorado reduce their impact on the outdoors. And the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics is based in Boulder. You're a national program. And we talked a little bit about this, but your group has several basic principles. Is there one that might not be intuitive or might surprise people? 
Um, you know, most of our principles are intuitive. Um, and again, I, I can't stress the first plan ahead and prepare enough, but a lot of times that is the one that people don't think about before enough before they they get here. But um, you know, there are some are sort of much more intuitive than others. So pack it in, pack it out has has been around for a, a forever. That's not necessarily one of the principles, but it's one of the easiest things for people to adapt and think about. When you bring things into the wilderness, take them out when you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Super easy. Um, One of the other principles that we have that is very critical today, particularly in Colorado, is around wildlife. And most people, when they travel to a park, particularly a national park or state park, you know, one of the things they really want to do is see wildlife. Um, And a lot of times, they really aren't aware of the the uh, way to interact with wildlife and really viewing from a distance and never feeding wildlife and the consequences of actions that that um, people take on uh, they really can be pretty devastating and usually wildlife pay the price particularly when it comes to food and feeding wildlife mm. I would say that's a that's a very challenging one for people. How optimistic are you that you'll be able to get this message out? I wonder if you have any research that shows you can change habits. Yeah, it's a great question. We do have um, actually quite a bit of research that tells us when people leave no trace, when they learn about leave no trace, and they've either gone through one of our training courses or awareness workshops, and they understand the principles, they do change their behavior on the land. And um, 89% of people who have learned learned about Leave No Trace tend to, A, be receptive to the concepts or the principles, and B, change their behavior as a result of that type of education. So we know that if we can get this message out to people in a meaningful, relevant way, and that's part of what we're trying to do is really make this education Colorado-specific um, and speak to the why it's so important that people will they, – they, number one, they care. They care enough and that they will change their, their behavior and then consequently impacts will be reduced on public lands. We did a story over the summer on an effort to clean up Conundrum Hot Springs near Aspen, and volunteers told us one day they collected enough human waste to fill a big garbage bag – Some of these areas are considering permits to limit the number of people who visit them. Do you ever think education can only go so far? Yeah, I not only think that, I I would guess that's the truth. I mean, again, we don't have um, specific data around that, but we know that education is a critical component to protecting natural lands, public lands. But it's probably not the only only thing, particularly when you're looking at uh, 10,000 people moving to this state almost every month. So it's a lot of people wanting to get onto the land. And those the impacts that more people have are very real, and I think it's a huge challenge for land managers. Mm-hmm. We feel very strongly that education, again, is a very critical piece um, but it might not be the only piece to protecting the land. It's a critical component. Dana, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. 
Dana Watts is executive director of Leave No Trace. She spoke earlier this year with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. It was a 2017 listener favorite. The La Alma Lincoln Park neighborhood in Denver has strong ties to the Chicano rights movement. You'll see murals celebrating that history. You'll also see the forces of change. New people are moving in. New buildings are going up. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones met a theater troupe that's keeping the history alive. In the heart of this neighborhood, southwest of downtown, you'll find the La Alma Rec Center. Esakael Lovato Jr. helped start this place in the early 70s. We started with a little shack that was over there by the swimming pool. It was a maintenance shed that the city handed over to a group of Chicano activists. They started out with arts and crafts, a few weights, and ping pong. Lovato says they wanted a space to keep young people out of trouble. To help them to make the changes they needed to make in their lives. And we saw recreation as being really, really an important key. But it wasn't easy for this community to do that. For one thing, the city wasn't hiring people from the neighborhood to work at the public facilities. Lovato says they had a fight on their hands. A recent performance inside the La Alma Rec Center portrayed some of that history. One of the first things that we organized in this particular community was a takeover of the swimming pool. That's Denver actor Mitch Marquez. He's reciting a monologue that draws from real stories Lovato shared. The people got into it. They took the lawnmowers and they drove them into the pool. Lovato has always advocated for the many low-income residents here. He remembers the good times, like big festivals in the park, and the bad, like clashes with police. Lovato understands that change is inevitable. He just doesn't want these people and their stories to be forgotten. There were a lot of things done here that need to be uh, documented historically so that people can see there's hope. Megan Henry first stepped inside the La Alma Rec Center a year and a half ago. Back then, she felt like an outsider. You're sort of feeling this anxiety like the first day of school. Henry works with a group called Mirror Image Arts. They use theater as part of an after-school program to prevent bullying. And they wanted to work closely with a community that's in transition. At first, Henry says they heard a lot of no's. We had to give the time and sort of build that trust. And when they did... The project expanded. They recorded 45 interviews with residents of all ages and backgrounds. They learned about La Alma's history, its plethora of public housing, and the influxes of middle class and refugee families. All this change, Henry says, has left plenty of residents, both old-timers and newcomers, feeling disconnected. Those stories inspired a full production with professional actors, dancers, and community members. It's called The Heart, The Soul. It was important that we tell the story in different ways because people consume information differently. Maybe English isn't your first language, so you can enjoy that piece that has no language. One performer portrays a range of characters using nearby Lincoln Park, like a homeless person sleeping on a bench or a jogger. And then you hear recordings the theater group made with people from the area, describing what it's like for them in the park. The park is immaculate. Don't ever, ever, ever be in the park after dark. We had some big, big barbecues. Sometimes I see things that are like evidence of people doing drugs. 
In another scene without dialogue, two neighbors greet each other with warm smiles and waves. They move and dance in lockstep. But then a new neighbor arrives, which leads to an awkward exchange. We've all had that moment where we don't know if we should acknowledge someone or avoid eye contact. Later, the audience breaks out into small groups to share thoughts stirred up by the performance. Some talk about simple solutions. What if we knew each other? What if we just knew each other's names? That's a great one. Others reflect on the past, like what life was like in the Red Projects, old brick buildings that were torn down to make way for the Denver Housing Authority's Mariposa District. Megan Henry of Mirror Image Arts hopes this is a good first step to bringing people together. If we're not thinking about it, we can't address it. So that's really our goal is to sort of just provide space for the conversation. Next, Henry says they'll go back through what they heard during those seven performances and try to figure out the best way to build off it. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. And I look forward to spending time with you in 2018. Happy New Year.